everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Air Force Jack School Podcast. We are joined today, again, by myself and Charlie Hedden. Charlie, say hello. Good morning. Apparently, we've startled a few people when Charlie suddenly chimes in on a couple episodes. So he's here <laughs> in the studio with us. Uh, and today, we are again joined by Lieutenant Colonel Charles Gartland, who's basically a third podcast host at this point. I believe so. Hey, thanks so much, Sharon. Happy to be here. And we are very lucky to have with us today Dr. Liz Woodworth, who is one of the instructors over at Air War College. Ma'am, can you just introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Liz Woodworth. I teach creative thinking and classical rhetoric at the Air War College, and I'm the director of research and electives. I'm thrilled to be invited to talk today. I mean, we're so excited to have you. Uh, so today, we are doing another book review, and this one is a little bit more relevant in today's world we are recording this in march uh about a month after the russian invasion of ukraine so today we are going to take a look at alexander solzhenitsyn's book one day in the life of ivan denisevich uh we will disclaim right at the top if you did not already pick up on it we don't speak russian um i certainly do not we will butcher names yes. throughout this entire You're podcast. You're going to give it the old college yes. try. Oh, and change pronunciations from change. one minute to the yes. next. Yes. We'll even, it's we'll fine. We'll pronounce Solzhenitsyn a couple different ways. Yes. <laughs> so please bear with us. Um, and know if you decide to read this book for yourself, uh, first, spoilers ahead. So if you were planning to read this book and you didn't want to know what happens, we're probably going to spoil that for you. And also, uh, just a note is different translations call some of the characters slightly different names. We're trying to be as consistent as we can to make sure that everybody understands who we're talking about. But if you read the book yourself, a character may be referred to by a different name. It may not, may not line up with what we call them here. So, okay. I thought we'd start with a little bit of an introduction to the author, uh, Solzhenitsyn, uh, who was born in December of 1918 in Russia. Um, he was an outspoken critic of communism and... Through this book and others, he helped to raise global awareness of the political repressions of the USSR. Uh, he himself, while serving as a captain in the Red Army during World War II, was arrested and sentenced to eight years in the Gulag, which is labor camp up uh, in the Siberian north of Russia. And then he received a sentence of eternal exile for criticizing Joseph Stalin in a private letter. And One Day in the Life was actually written based on his experiences of being in one of these labor camps for eight years. He was eventually released and exonerated after the Khrushchev thaw. Uh, during Khrushchev's term, he received approval from Khrushchev himself to print his writings about the repressions of the Soviet Union and his experiences. Um, however, that did not last long. And after Khrushchev was removed, the Soviet authorities tried to discourage him from continuing to write. Uh, and then he then published the Gulag Archipelago in 1973. Uh, and they did not like that. And he lost his Soviet citizenship uh, and was flown to West Germany is how it was described. I think he was deposited. <laughs> we call it deported. <laughs> deported. <laughs> deported to West Germany. Uh, and then he ended up coming here with his family to live in the U.S., for a while, um, and then eventually in 1990, he got his citizenship back, and he moved back to Russia, where he finished out the rest of his life, and he died in 2008. Um, but he was the winner of the 1970 Nobel Prize in Literature for the Gulag, Gulag Archipelago, 
um, for the ethical force for, oh my goodness for the ethical force with which he has pursued the indispensable traditions of Russian literature, which is so Russian. Uh, indeed, <laughs> and let me just b- brief comment on that for those of you who would like to take uh, take a stab at Russian literature but do not have the endurance or commitment required for Gulag. Archipelago, archipelago, however you want to pronounce it. Well, I don't know. I mean, that's another (laughs) one. I guess even on some of our English, we could probably (laughs) we could probably give a disclaimer Uh, that the abridged version. I just sitting on the desk uh, in my office. I want to say runs to close to a thousand pages. The unabridged. unabridged. That's the abridged. The unabridged is over that. It's actually hard to find a copy (laughs) of the unabridged version if you go online. So. This, I think, based on what I've read out there, this is a nice little condensed version of that. So it's only one day. It's only it's yeah. only, but literally by <laughs> title, it is one day in the life of a Zek uh, in the Gulag, and it runs to in this version a hundred and I think it's one hundred and sixty something pages here. So, and you can good read it in one day. And you can Absolutely, read it in one day. Absolutely. <laughs> a beach read. It's about five hours on Audible. <laughs> Thanks, Charlie. Yeah, oh, that's, yeah, good. There you that's go. good to know. Yeah. 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 So a road trip uh, down to Pensacola and back. If you're yeah. here at I'm just so school. proud I read the right book this time. <laughs> <laughs> We're also proud of you. <laughs> I'm just going to bask in that. Uh, so, Colonel Gartland, do you want to tell us a little bit more about the book? Anything interesting? Yeah, there's, uh, of course... With all of these, all of the books that we've had in our podcast, there's so much more to it. And one of the temptations in this podcast is to try and cover everything, especially in a book like this that's so condensed. Let me start making a comparison that probably might seem a bit strange because I believe all of us here have read it. But there, there is this, this book did remind me in some ways of The Old Man and the Sea. So different, obviously, different genre, different authors, but Old Man in the Sea also looking at a, at a tight, confined period of time. I don't remember if it was just one day in Old Man in the Sea, but it was pretty close. It was pretty close to that. And yet so much is packed into so many themes, so much going on. And we have the same thing here in one day in the life of Shukov, uh, a, uh, a prisoner at the gulag as with most of his companions he isn't actually a criminal in the criminal law sense of the term that's yet another theme that you see in this book he's a political dissident Uh, he's been given 10 years he actually had a military tie-in as i recall he had been taken prisoner yes sir he was a pow and he they were released and his crime was having been a POW. Right. Yeah, so there were many others there who were political dissidents. Actually, he was just in the Red Army, and his crime was being captured and having the audacity to come back. Very true. That actually happened to tons of Red Army soldiers. Yes. And I believe um, they actually had him sit down and write a false confession to being a treasoner or a traitor. After right. much beating. Yes, yes. Right. Be- beating and abuse. Right. Coerced, as we say in the yes. legal world. <laughs> so so what, what, one of the ironies, so continuing with this criminal law theme of the book, is that the prisoners are placed in the position of having to be prison criminals and constantly break 
the rules, break their criminal code in order to survive, even though most of them aren't actually criminals, but they almost get forced into this criminal style lifestyle in order to be able to endure their time. So the book basically follows Shukov throughout his day, and it is literally the full day. The bell clang rings at 0500. They they have this period where they're preparing to go for their breakfast. They march over to breakfast, and then they're sent out to their day camp. In this case, they're building, I forget what it was. It's a power it was, plant, I think. It was a power, that's right, a power mm-hmm. plant. And Shukov happens to be a mason, I guess an improvised mason. He had learned it before he was in the camp, but wound up becoming a Seems like, from the description, a fairly proficient mason during his time there. All of the back and forth that takes place when they're laying the bricks, having to try and negotiate with the authorities there and get through the day, the march back to the prison camp, dinner, and all of the shenanigans that go on. And it takes it up to their their bedtime and yet another uh, count of the individuals of the time there. And they had multiple of those, which is basically just intended to harass the prisoners. So that's, that's the day in the life. Yeah. Um, Dr. Woodworth, do you want to walk us through some of the characters? I can. Um, Shukov, of course, is the main character. He is what we would call a protagonist. And I would say a hero as well. Um, and I'll, I'll say why in just a minute, but he's in prison for 10 years for having confessed to being a spy because he had, as you said, the audacity to escape from being a German POW. And in fact, there's only one spy actually in the prison, a Moldavian. Uh, Another character is Alyosha, a Baptist. He is imprisoned because he is a Baptist. Uh, Gopchik is a younger member of the squad and he's imprisoned in the gulag for taking food to Ukrainian nationalists, which I think is particularly relevant for our current time. Um, If that is the case, I think many of us would be in a gulag. Uh, Then Chirin or Tyrin is the foreman of the squad and he'd been in the camp for 19 years. And if I recall correctly, his sentence was not 19 years. But at some point, you just live there. Right. And your sentence just continues to go on. And in fact, we see uh, through the day, new prisoners arrive, and they've all been sentenced to 25 years because that's the new sentence. Right. It's also (laughs) arbitrary. It's just you steal bread, 25 years. You assassinate, 25 years. You jaywalk, 25 years. And and so it's, it's... the absurdity yes. of the entire system is a particular point I want to touch on later. But uh, another character, Fetchikov, is, as we talked about right before we started recording, he's a bowl licker. <laughs> and he is the lowest of the low. He waits at the end of the meal to see if any prisoners turn in bowls that have tiny little scraps of food in them. And he shamelessly licks whatever's left out of the bowls. And he looks for tiny bits of tobacco on the ground. He is definitely a scrounger. And in the hierarchy of the camp, he is among the lowest of the low. He almost seems like, um, like a, they almost, he's almost described like a stray dog. Like yes. he will come up and just stare at people, hoping that they'll <laughs> give him something to eat. Yep. And then he'll wait and he'll like lick their bowls after yeah. they take them over. And he's definitely the 
in the hierarchy of their uh, little group, their, what was the name of the, their little work 104th. Group, the 104th work group that they're in, he's definitely at the bottom. Yeah. The human dignity yes. that Shukov retains, Fetchikov has lost. Yes. yes. Absolutely. Yeah, this is, Liz, before, before you go on, just one, just one thought that came to mind as you were reciting all these characters, and I hadn't thought of this before, is that the book is, in a way, a psychological case study on how people deal with oppression. Absolutely. And as you as you mention each of these individuals and how they dealt with them, you're about to get to some more. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, so, so so we'll we'll see that as as we discuss the characters throughout the discussion. Go ahead, Liz. Absolutely. Uh, there's also um, Cesar or Caesar. He is an inmate who works in the camp office, and that's a cushy job because you don't necessarily freeze. And and we should mention for sure that it is in Siberia. And it is very cold. They <laughs> cold is a theme in yes. this yeah. book. It's, it's very cold. It's very cold. In fact, there's a scene where they check the temperature, and the other prisoners tell the one prisoner who's climbing up the wall to wipe the frost off the thermometer to see what temperature is. Don't breathe on it. Don't breathe on it. <laughs> because the colder it is, there might be a point when it's below forty or it was yeah below forty two below, below forty something. Yeah, wow. then they don't have to go out and work. But it was only 31 below that day on our particular Comparatively day. I believe there was yeah. some skepticism as to how accurate they kept those thermometers. Too. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yes. Exactly. That was kind of, that was, a, that was another <laughs> illustration of the ultimate lie that all of them lived. That not even the thermostat, they couldn't even rely on that. They couldn't rely on what their actual sentence would yes. be. They couldn't rely on the thermostat for what the temperature was. And do you guys remember at one point someone says, oh, at noon, we're going to take this break. And that's when the sun's highest in the sky. And someone says, no, no, the Soviets have determined that 1 p.m. is now high noon. High noon is 1300. <laughs> it immediately brought me back when I read that. I made a note of it. I thought of 1984. Yes. And one plus, was it one plus one is three or two, two plus two, two is, is five. five? Two plus two is five. Why is two plus two five? Because, because, because the regime says They so. said, yeah. yeah. Um, and so Cesar works in the camp. He has a civilian fur hat, which marks him as pretty high up. Um, he's a film director. He represents, I think, the kind of oppression of culture that occurred during the Soviet reign. And he's intelligent and he participates in quite an interesting conversation. And clearly he came from an educated class at some point. He gets pretty terrific uh, food parcels. Just how they got food parcels from home is another absurd process. Uh, another character, fairly new, uh, Buyanovsky is a formal, former naval captain who is imprisoned because he was given a Christmas present from a British officer. Right. <laughs> right. And, and so, and yeah, he was supposed to, to be there. At yeah. The time. Yeah. He was assigned. Uh, yes. There. He was a li liaison yeah. at, for the British Navy. And it just goes to show how arbitrary it is because yeah. Shukov is there because he had been a German POW, <laughs> and the captain is there because he had been working with the British Navy. So it's pretty much if you're any sort of foreign affiliation, regardless of if they were allies or enemies during the war, that's enough. And that was exactly the philosophy, yeah. Aaron, that you had been tainted 
even if the government had, in effect, directed you to be tainted, yeah. the idea was that you've been tainted now by this exposure we can't trust. Well, yeah. I think that, to me, brings up a theme that's throughout it, and that's the utter paranoia that leads to this yes. absolute control yes. where we can't even risk the exposure to other ideas here. Right. Um, we, we're not going to interview you and find out what you really think about how the Brits, how the Brits do things. We now know if you got this present, you are persona non grata. You are irredeemable. You are sent to the gulag. And it's it's the same with searching for any scraps of food or any books or any personal items. I mean, they're constantly subject to these paranoid accountability measures because the party needs complete and utter control. And I think the real irony is, and um, I was planning to bring this up later too, when we got really more into the themes of the book, but that... These men are all very um, almost religiously communist and they have really absorbed and, you know, they really believe in the lifestyle and the mindset. Um, it's really interesting. When I was reading about uh, the book before we came in, um, there was a note that I guess Solzhenitsyn was in in his prison camp when Stalin died and the men, the prisoners of the prison camp, weeped at his death. They were devastated by his death. Uh, and I think that goes a lot toward understanding this book and the characters in this book. Um, the idea that even though they're living this totally arbitrary and, and outrageous punishment, they still really buy into the system that put them there. And I think a lot of them kind of believe that they're supposed to be there. They're like, well, this is what they think I need. That so, is the cult of the autocrat. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, and so, you know, sad captain uh, yes. loses his fabulous job in the right, navy right. and he's fairly new in the prison and he still exhibits some of his leadership abilities he tries to but yes. he finds out that that doesn't it's, really he's work being, he's being broken down and, yeah. and Aaron uh, to your to your point about the the ideological integrity if you will of the characters it's it's the, I'm just going to call him the captain right okay? not going to not going to even try so just going to say <laughs> The captain calls out someone. I don't remember the circumstance in the book, but he says, hey, you're not being a good, was, did he say you're not being a good Soviet or a good communist? Right. I forgot exactly how he put it. As in, no, 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 this isn't the way that it's supposed to play out here. Right. And yet it's not playing out that way. As you can see, if that's what I think one of the themes of this book is the breakdown of Marxism. Because in this, in this prison camp, they're all prisoners so they should really all even more so than in than in regular society they should all be the same and yet what happens hierarchy. there actually yeah. is a hierarchy <laughs> there is a caste system at the prison and you you mentioned it liz as you were going through the characters yep and the captain is not expecting that but we have people who are on different tiers of existence amongst the prisoners and so what happens is that they actually wind up in there's all supposed to be there theoretically for the service of the state right, right. and yet what happens they all start turning on one another in a way although that that can be contrasted actually with many right. examples where they don't yeah okay and, but you do have that breakdown go ahead yeah and here we are in air university training people to be incredible leaders and the captain is an example of that and shukov speculates he may not make it yeah. Because if he speaks up too often, they're going to put him in 
uh, the hut. In solitary. Which, which, solitary, and the walls are ice, and you go for 10 days. You might possibly survive, but your body will be broken. And right. the suggestion in the book is that maybe you live a couple of years after that. Yeah, but right. there's no real recovering. You, you can't recover from that sort of edge of hypothermia, maybe pulled back, you lose some things. Even Shukov had... Uh, scurvy at one of his previous camps and he speaks with a lisp because he lost some of his teeth As a result got of scurvy it. in siberia right and of the, course the book ends of course. with the captain going off yes. to solitary so, so to see we, we were left know. hanging as to yes. whether or not he was going to survive that uh, and certainly to break break him down physically yes. and to break down any trace of the previous life that, that well and we'll he's a lesson more. He's a lesson for the others That's as right. well. Okay, so there is also uh, Pavlo, who is a Ukrainian, who served as the uh, deputy foreman in the, the 104th. He sort of acted when Tyrion was absent. And there is a leading worker, a Latvian, that works with Shukov, and his name is Ivan Kilgus. Kilgus, yeah, I think um, so. Yeah. It could be that. Sounds right. Yeah. Um, but we know him because he's the Latvian. That's right. <laughs> and then Senka, who is also uh, works with Shukov when they're out on their work detail as a, a colleague in bricklaying. And he's in deaf. Right. He's deaf. And I. so the idea that there are all these kinds of human physical breakdowns that happen in the gulag and there's no help for it the in fact if you are ill and you go to the hospital the dispensary the orderly is a university student who lied about knowing medicine in order to get the cushy job in fact he is a student of literature <laughs> <laughs> so to have one of one of us basically attending attending to your scurvy racked body. Yes, I um, think that's very cunning. Yes, yes, <laughs> it was it was good job. And <laughs> and so he is administering shots and taking blood. He doesn't know what he's doing. And when Shukov goes to the dispensary to see if he can get in, in the morning, he tries to get off work duty because he feels an ache everywhere. He doesn't feel good. He sits down and the orderly asks him, why didn't you try to do this last night? Try to do it. You know, you know, by this time of the morning, we've already had, we've already allowed our two sick people off for the day. And that's it. And he's watching the orderly writing and he is clearly writing a poem. That's right. Not totally anything about this. with medical records. Exactly. And so... <laughs> So the, the absurdity is packed in every moment. And I think the genius of Solzhenitsyn in telling the story through one day is that these tiny things are revealed rather than big, sweeping, epic, Tolstoy, you know, Napoleonic Russian war with hundreds of thousands of people. It is this tiny group and it's a small group of people who are named and every little precise detail is given to us. Um, so if we want to talk about some of those details, those sure. are really the main it's the, the main characters. It's the inverse of Tolstoy. Yes. In page, in page length yes. and the yeah. lack of, 
of sweeping and lack of sweeping narratives. You're absolutely yeah. right. It's all in the details. And there, there are a couple instances in the book, for instance, where he's being, Shukov is being incredibly meticulous, both in his actions mm -hmm. and in his description especially when it comes to food. Oh, he's food obsessed. Which which is which is yeah, entirely right, entirely understandable because they're all freezing <laughs> and they're starving and he talks about saving the end if you think of a of a loaf of french bread, the bread the hardened bread crust <laughs> at the end of the loaf and how he saved it in his mattress he had sewn a specific little pocket compartment in it so that when the bed mattresses are, are uh, inspected and shaken out it won't fall out and they won't discover it and he uses the end of that bread crust as a spoon not just because for its utilitarian value because it's an effective way of actually getting all the the soup but it absorbs it as well yes. and so nothing would be more perfectly suited to absorbing every last drop of their putrid uh, uh sub in, in many cases substantive lists right substance yeah. lists soup than the end of a bread crust and there are a couple of explanations in the book just talking about how it was that he scraped out the bowl his in preparation detail. for it in detail yeah the curve of the crust matched the curve of the bowl he was so thrilled by that and remember he had a little fake pocket in his also, jacket another to, one. to put away right. little scraps of food because if you happen to do someone a favor they might give you an extra portion of bread but you didn't want to eat it all at once because then that's wasteful exactly you, you might want it later you might need it later and yeah it's he, he has a needle which is an unusual weapon in the prison so that he ha he sews for others to get favors and he also uses it to squirrel away his bread and one of the things when he talks about the soup i think is a, an incredible moment when we first find him eating well he's eating throughout the whole book he's desperate every moment for food but when he's having soup he comes to the meal a little late and we find that the prisoners will kindly and generously for favors later save you a bowl right so he has a bowl saved it's cold when he gets there but he still has a spoon that he fashioned that he wears in his boot he takes it out he takes his hat off because that's what you do when you eat and he eats the soup and he talks about it wasn't the worst it wasn't the best it wasn't just the scum on the top and broth only but there was a little there were some fish bones and so he would take each bone and suck it yes. to get as much out of it he would eat tails and he would eat heads and he would eat fins but not but, but not I remember their this. eyes but if the eyes. if the eyeball <laughs> was in the head it was fine but if it was floating <laughs> it was, free in the soup no <laughs> And, and they'd make fun of him. And they'd it. make fun of him because he wouldn't eat the free eyeball. And and so when That's a lot of nutrients you're leaving there. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> and and he talks about point of um, principle. A, another part of the meal that at that same time, so they got a little soup and they got a little like uh it made me think of polenta, uh, a creamy, mushy kind of thing that had no flavor, but it had frozen solid. <laughs> so he had to like pick off a bit eat it pick off a bit and eat it 
And so the food, it's, it's horrific. He dreams about maybe being sick, but not that sick. And being able to spend three weeks in the hospital where he could have clear beef broth. And do nothing. And do nothing. nothing. And he he said, but I don't want to be so sick that I die. And that tells us a lot about who he is. For sure. Great, great point, by the way, that uh, obviously food, food food is a concern, the theme, motif throughout the book. But one thing I hadn't thought of is... How he's talking about it. You said, Liz, he's talking about it all the time. And yet he's he's obsessed with food. And yet it's pretty much nothing that he's talking about. (laughs) I mean, he's not really not talking about much food at all. He isn't. I mean, it's practically nothing. It's it's just empty broth on a couple of occasions. But somehow he manages to talk about it for basically the entire book. It's every moment. And when they have lunch, okay, so they're at the power plant and they're doing their mason rework, but they don't, one of the absurd things about the prison is that they're there to be punished and they have to do work to give back to the Soviet state, but they don't always get to do the work in a timely way because the wheelbarrows are broken or the way to lift the bricks up to the second floor has been damaged and they don't have anyone to fix it. And if you want to really do a good job, you have to hide a tool uh, in the wall like he does. And it's, it's insane that they sit around for a while. They get up at five. They don't really start working till 10 or 11. Right. And, and in, in the work, and I see you're poised here for a comment, so I just before we forget, this is one another one of these instances in the book because there's so much that you can say or you can't say everything. But I just highlighted this part here in the book uh, about a quarter of the way through where Shukov says more depended on the work report than on the yes. work itself. There's constant this constant form over function that I think is an aspect of the breakdown of Marxism that Solzhenitsyn's getting at in yes. the book here. Because on multiple occasions, it's actually, they're not performing. In fact, that particular, the day that's being discussed here was a pretty good day <laughs> yeah. in terms of their work performance and how much of the wall they were able to, they were able to build. But he remarks, and this is just one instance of it, that it really isn't even so much the work sometimes, but rather the fact that they're put, being put through the ritualistic motions of what they have to do, not right. so much the actual work product itself. He values a clever squad leader, he says. I had highlighted something very similar. A clever squad leader will prove that work which hadn't been done had been done to turn jobs that were rated low into ones that were rated high. It's crazy. And while they're building the wall, it's very satisfying. And in fact, I don't know if you guys felt this, but when they're building the wall, I'd read this before, but I'd forgotten about the wall. Same here. As they're building the wall, I'm thinking, oh, please don't let something bad happen. Please let them work on the wall. Please don't let anybody get hurt. Don't let the deaf guy fall off the the wall. Please let the sides meet up. I was so wrapped up in the work. And I think that's another genius of Solzhenitsyn. They're building a wall at a power plant that can't even be used in a part of the world where the guards are as miserable as the prison prisoners and the the mortar freezes by the time they get it by the yeah, time they get, they get it, it to the bricks and 
and yet you want them you want them to have the satisfaction it's a it's a horrific thing that solzhenitsyn does to the reader right he makes you want something to be okay right and for shukov it's really not so much the the wall itself again it's not really the end product it's the work itself the rhythm in fact there was even the 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 ritual of going through it and this is another one we talk about those detailed descriptions in the book yes. of food there are many detailed descriptions also of work and there's one passage in particular where it's discussing how he lays. I feel like I almost became like an apprentice uh, masonry. Did you yeah. want to go out and lay some I, I, bricks? My, actually, <laughs> what, one thing that I really thought is that I'd really be a horrible mason because <laughs> I, I don't think I have any aptitude for this whatsoever. Because he's talking about how you had to constantly check the level of the brick and you had to be careful to not put too much or too little mortar. You had to level it out. And you're trying to do this under freezing conditions because the mortar is literally setting as you're, as you're laying down each block. But he has this passage where he discusses the process of it. And he even, Shukov even said before they headed out to the work site that the real punishment was not being allowed to work. <gasps> Going out to dig in the frozen tundra, right. which you cannot dig. Right, right. To not be able to take that. So to be in solitary confinement, to not go out and work, because when you're working, the time goes by. And in fact, they're racing against the clock at the end of the day to actually, to actually finish up everything and get the tools turned in. So work is another one of these recurring themes throughout throughout the book and the value of work it's how they derive some of their meaning because they really don't have any other source of it shukov exactly. takes a lot of pride he feels like he in the hierarchy he kind of talks about himself as being somewhere in the middle he's not a high guy he's not a low guy he's not the you know scrap eater but then when they're on the work site he's like the top dog he's skilled enough that everyone listens to him he has a little trowel that he hides that's his trowel i love that he hides his own tool because he wants to do a good job yeah. and even at one point when they're laying the brick he's sort of while they're waiting for the mortar and the bricks to come up to the second floor because everybody has to they're throwing the bricks up for other guys to catch because the mechanism to get the bricks upstairs <laughs> is broken it's broken like um, so much else yeah and he's taking a look at the wall and he's taking a look at the guys who are going to be on the teams to build the wall and he's concerned because he knows if people are there who don't good, do a good job, he's going to have to fix it tomorrow. He's not going to just, they're not just slapping bricks down to call it a day. He takes a lot of pride in what this wall looks like. And he knows that if it's not done properly, that he's going to have to try to fix it. Right. And he and he definitely cares, as, as you were saying, Aaron, there's kind of a, a range of attitudes that you see in the characters throughout the book yes. in, in terms of their devotion. And Shukov really seems to stand for the principle that if you're going to make it through this, you can't care too much and you can't care too little. You he, have to care. You have to care yeah. to some degree. But he's really a, I have to, if I had to pin him down, I'd say that he's really a, a pragmatist. Yeah. It, it, and he, I think if you look, okay, so there's a fur civilian hat wearing dude. And then there is bowl liquor dude. And this one very much taking advantage of others in the civilian fur hat, uh, really just milking the situation for all he could, can. And then the bowl licker who is so desperate, he's lost all his humanity and dignity. And then Shukov, who takes pride in the work that he's doing 
And as he explains to us the rules of the prison, he also talks about the captain may not get it. Um, Gopchik might be okay. He might be able to survive. So he he positions himself some, somewhat as a mentor teacher that he has, he understands he still has value. Well, and I think at one point too, they're sitting and talking um, because Shukov is, they're kind of thinking of him as almost like the old man because he's been for eight years out of his 10 already. And he kind of talks about how he doesn't even allow himself to think about the possibility of release because A, he doesn't actually think he's going to be released right. because no one ever right. really is. Yeah. But even if he is, exile follows and he just becomes one of the people who work they live and work right outside of the camp but they're not allowed to return home so i think it's almost it's pragmatism and maybe also just sort of he's not really defeated by it but i think he's very realistic about the fact that this is kind of it so if i think that's the whole point of making it one day is that this is and, and all this minute details because this is all there is for his life this now. day is yes. like any other day yes this is the life this and one day is their life. This yeah. minute by minute. Day after day. Bowl of gruel by bowl of gruel. This is his life now forever. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't allow himself to think about the possibility of release. And he doesn't allow himself really to think about home. He doesn't want letters anymore from his family. He tells his wife, stop writing. Don't try to send me right. things. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't remember what she looks like. We could ex- we could explore that one for a while here, oh my too. Gosh, I, don't, yeah. I don't know if we want to, Charlie. To, go ahead. To Aaron's point, I, one of the things that I noticed in here is uh, his outlook. He doesn't break away often and just kind of editorialize what's going on, I'm, what he's thinking about what's going on. But a couple of places jumped out at me, and one of those is he's laying there, he's miserable, he's trying to decide early in the book whether he's going to go to the infirmary or not, and he says, uh, let's see, he couldn't manage to keep warm that night, in his sleep he felt very sick, and then again a little better, all the time he dreaded the morning, and then this standalone paragraph sentence, but the morning came as it always did. And it's like uh. a phrase that's so often used in a hopeful term, and his is not exactly misery, but it's certainly not hopeful. It's the morning's going to come again. This day is going to repeat itself tomorrow. This year's going to repeat itself next year. And it's resignation and endurance. Right. So I think you, yeah. you, you've all captured it. He's not, you can't be an idealist uh, and you can't be a total sloth either. And he has a lot of practical value that he presents to people with all of the little additional jobs that he does. The oh, sewing. he offers to wait in line. For a guy he thinks is going to get maybe a package of food from home. So if he does that, then his reward is a little bit of that food. And he, oh, I love the lunch scene. Do you remember that where he, he's like juggling the bowls and trying to make sure that his squad gets in line to get the food and he puts the bowls down and they count the bowls and he makes sure there's room for everybody and they have, they can barely eat. They're so squished together. And it is a uh, it, it's a dance almost it is. the way He's they playing describe the it. Game. I mm-hmm, almost yeah. as you were saying that, Liz, I was almost thinking to myself, I wonder if this isn't a great guidebook for life or maybe <laughs> military life, because because Shukov is he he's a pragmatist who presents value to other people in what he does. And yet, along the way, it's not always ruled by self-interest. There are many times mm-hmm. when he simply does a kind thing, 
while playing this game of, of prison life in the gulag, he'll do a kind thing just for the sake of doing a kind thing. And the one that the one that I recall was when they were laying the bricks. I forget who it was that was Senka. Doesn't matter. It was one of the other characters. And he he offered, I think, to lay the bricks for him. And he said, I'm, I'm going to do that to just make it easier on him. And it wasn't in exchange for anything at all. Usually it was. Yeah. Usually it was, but not all the time. And he expresses sympathy also for the captain. He understands the poor captain's plight. He used to be this, this respected official with authority, and now he's been reduced to this. And Shukov is genuinely, genuinely takes pity on him. Yeah. So, so when I say maybe this is a good guidebook for life or military life, the truth is, if you know this, the military, you do have to play the game to a certain degree or you're not going to make it. You're literally not going to make it through your career. Yet at the same time, you can still manage to be, in most scenarios, hopefully in all scenarios, a decent human being too. And Shukov exemplifies that. And I hated to draw the comparison earlier when we were talking about the um... – waiting for the work to actually happen and being frustrated by the means by which they're supposed to be working. And I was thinking about my own morning, which was that I got here to school and my computer did not work. And I restarted it and it still didn't work. And then I restarted it. Furnished government equipment, yep. not. And yes, it still didn't absolutely work. Absolutely <laughs> And I remember I had like a very panicked 20 minutes where I thought I have to prepare for the podcast. My computer doesn't remember what the internet is. It can't how can find, I do my job? Yep. How can I do my job? It can't find one of my monitors. <laughs> I can't open my emails. And I don't know what to do. And I think we, I mean, that's kind of like a DOD joke, I think, that we kind but of have these. But you're here and I'm prepared. Here. Yes. Good job, Shukov. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> you pulled it off. You found a way. We're going to all share crusts of bread later. Well, I also think it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, too, talking about playing the game. In that scene when they're getting lunch, uh, Shukov has been in the prison camp for quite some time. He's very crafty, and he notices that the We'll call him the chef, um, who's just That's another a, prisoner. Yeah, very generous. Yes. Very, very generous. The cook, the person who has heated up the gruel, um, <laughs> has – he put two bowls on like the little um, – what I'm imagining is like the waitress window. Right. Uh, which is certainly not what it was. Um, but he puts out two bowls and he gets distracted and he looks away. And they're counting out the bowls as they put them out to make sure each gang only gets the number for the gang. And he doesn't count those two. And Shukov takes them and he goes – uh, 13 and 14 where they already have all of their bowls and they get into a little bit of a tiff where they're like hey you can't just take those and he's like hey it's not my problem if you don't know how to count and they kind of have this back and forth and then you know it's too much effort to really argue with him about it so he ends up kind of stealing two additional bowls but then they go to the gang boss at, who I think is Pavlov or Palov, I don't know, Russian. Um, <laughs> the assistant gang boss, or the deputy gang boss, uh, and it's sort of his to distribute. Yes. But the whole meal, Shukov is eating with one eye on those bowls because he's expecting, as the one who finagled them, that his reward will be that he gets one. But right. he can't, he doesn't care, he doesn't have a guarantee. Right, and he has to wait. And he has to wait. And we're waiting. I was like, oh, please, please, let him get that extra really? bowl. <laughs> extra bowl I rule. really, oh, if he doesn't get that, I'm going to be so mad. I, I got so emotionally wrapped up in it. And I think that is the uh, the amazing part of this. It's one day and the details are so tiny. And can you ever imagine but, in any other story being so preoccupied as a reader Yeah. with that? Will yeah. he get his extra bowl of gruel? But you're really, yeah. you're, you're really longing 
yeah. for him. Right. That's the genius, as you said, Liz. And uh, I, I had read this in 1986, and I was very inspired by it for a couple of reasons, but I didn't remember if he lived. If Shukov lived. Yes, if Shukov lived. So I was panicking. I in, didn't either. In this read through thinking, does he die? I, you know, I couldn't remember. And so thinking, oh, he's got to get that extra bowl of gruel. This is, this is monumental. And he does. And thank goodness. And, um, but I, I, I love what you had to say about this can be not a guide to how to live. There's a lot of stuff in here you don't want to do, Um, (laughs) but as a metaphor, right. For survival. And in 1986, I was living in Idaho and I was very cold. (laughs) I'd come from the desert in Southern California. I wasn't prepared for cold. I I had blue jeans and cowboy boots, right? (laughs) Thinking that's what you wear. It could be the gulag to some. I'm not sure if it it was for you. It was was definitely colder than I was used to. And I read this book and I thought, oh, this guy can get through a day. I have no business crying my frozen tears in Idaho about how hard this is for me. For sure. For because sure. this guy, and I knew Solzhenitsyn had actually been through it. This guy lived through a day. If he can do that, I can find a way to be okay here, away from my friends, away from my family, in a place where it's cold and the roads are icy and I don't know how to drive. And I thought an Angora sweater looked good, but it doesn't help you stay warm. And <laughs> and so for years, this book was kind of in the back of my mind as one of those really foundational, life-changing books, but I didn't understand why. It was just there until I read it this time and I was like, why haven't I read this book like five more times? Because you get to the end and it is about strength and pity and survival and joy and finding your way wherever you are. That uh, Somebody reminded me yesterday of that uh, bloom where you're planted. We say that a lot in the military. Yes. It was actually a military um, member who said that to me. Because like Shukov, you have no choice many you, times. You're going to yes. go where the Air Force needs you to go. And sometimes it's not the job you thought you were going to get either. And so I love that he somehow managed to, to get through. A couple of riffs on that one. I'm not sure how we're doing on time at this stage. But number one, on the power of literature, over the course of a lifetime, and that's mm-hmm. happened to me with a couple of books, and I would say that this is one of them, and I'd only read it a couple of years previous and somehow managed to forget also, I don't know how, but managed <laughs> to forget whether or not Shukov lived. And that is another example of Solzhenitsyn's ability as a writer here, because there is a bit of that suspense here. Something bad's going to happen to this guy. He just seems to be able to navigate this crazy system too well. Is he going to, as you said, fall off the wall? Is he going to get thrown in solitary for some completely arbitrary <gasps> reason? And, and he, that that's there. And he's almost right going to get caught smuggling in that piece of hacksaw oh, at yeah. the end of the day. I actually think I was sweating 
when they were getting searched after their work in the power plant, coming back to the prison, they did they have to recount the prisoners? They like were recounting. Two or it three happened times. a bunch, a bunch yeah. of times. They're out there for an extra hour and a half because one of the prisoners fell asleep that, and they couldn't find it. That's it was the right. Spy. It was the, the, spy. the Moldavian spy. spy. That's right. And so they had to recount and recount, and then they started to like check the 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 shoes, the the not socks. They had foot rags. Ugh. and you know open up their their clothes expose themselves to this freezing weather and now it's dark in the evening and he's got that little tiny piece of hacksaw in his mitten and he is one mitten away from death it is so, so powerful so to, and to set it up for for the reader what happens is that he has to as liz said he has to spread open his jacket and then hold up his mittens in yep. front of the guard and so the guard goes to grab one of the mittens and crush it as 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 is described in the book to make sure that there's nothing in it and then winds up not checking the other one absolutely that has the, yeah that has the shard the shard of steel in it well and even that uh shukov had exerted what control he could by picking which line which search line he was <gasps> going to because he felt like this this kind of grizzled older gentleman might not be quite as gung ho as some of the younger guards who are doing the searches. So, uh, and I was my I wasn't as apprehensive per se. I was just I was like, oh, here it is. This is it. This, this is, is it. Be- <laughs> this is it. This is it. This is it. Here, here comes here so comes solitary. This is how day ends. He's he's done for. But then he escaped, and I was like, oh, that's not nearly as Russian as I was expecting. Just a, just 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 a bit of luck. Maybe yeah. also one of one of the lessons here. Right. And the other the other thing I was going to say, Liz, on your comment concerned how so much of this book also on a very simple level i mean we can mm-hmm. talk you know, we can talk about themes we can talk about marxism we can talk about all sorts of things and you know, very degrees of sophistication but clearly one lesson from this book is just be grateful for what you have and i'm not surprised at all that this would have stayed in your memory during during what were relatively speaking trying circumstances for you out in idaho Yes. Okay. With with the cowboy boots and everything, (laughs) that you would think back on. Whoa! And and Solzhenitsyn actually did live. Yes. Through this, out in Siberia, forty below, year after year. Much colder than Idaho. Much colder than (laughs) Idaho. And it does put into perspective when we say first world problems. Yes, it really does. They're not gulag uh, level problems. There's a line in the book. Shukov is thinking. So leave envy to those who always think the radish in the other fellow's hand is bigger than yours. The radish. Yes. Shukov knows life and never opens his belly to what doesn't belong to him. That for me was so powerful because that is, if you, there is no grass is greener. Well, there's no grass. There's, yeah. there is, yeah, there is no grass. Yeah. And, and that I think is part of his strength. And maybe, I, of course, I didn't remember that, but maybe that's part of the lesson that stuck with me is don't envy people things that you don't have. Be aware of what you have. Be mindful. Be focused. Live the life you have so that you don't spend it in dreaming away i wish i had a bigger radish right yeah. of all things <laughs> of all, all things. things which really it's <clears throat> when i read that i thought to myself that's interesting that he said radish 
the food. Clearly, it's the food thing. Clearly, culturally, that <laughs> right. has that has more value in other other places. I personally don't don't mind radishes at all. But I, that's right. about the, the best I can say about radishes is that I don't mind them at yeah. all. But but nonetheless, yeah. that that's that would be something they a lot of those people would die to actually have a radish, something out of out of the norm for what they were dealing with. Go ahead, I think Aaron. also too. So to kind of um, I think a nice clean way to to kind of talk about the idea that you know it could be worse and maybe just be appreciating what you have is really the very end of the book where it says Shukov went to sleep and he was very happy he'd had a lot of luck today they hadn't put him in the cooler the gang hadn't been chased out to work in the socialist community community development he'd finagled an extra bowl of mush at noon the boss had gotten them good rates for their work mush he'd felt good making that wall they hadn't found that piece of steel in the frisk Cesar had paid him off in the evening He'd bought some tobacco, and he'd gotten over that sickness. Nothing had spoiled the day, and it had almost been happy. There were 3,653 days like this in his sentence from Reveille to Lights Out. The three extra ones were because of the leap years. Be grateful for what you have. Be grateful for what you have. Work with what you've got, for sure, a lesson of this book. I think that's that perspective and the... Just the marvel of writing this book of these conditions and uh, and yet so many of the human aspects of it translate perfectly well, whether it's a very first world condition and how you mm-hmm. relate to other people and how you can find satisfaction in your work and what you have, whether you're a prisoner in the gulag or you're you know enjoying all the first world comforts that we do, there's still a ton of ways that being human looks looks real similar across times and conditions and culture. Oh, Charlie, I think you said it. That is the point. That's why we're all here, right? Because literature is what connects us. Um, We read literature. We find value in it. It's about the human soul. We write books. We read books to get connections. The Story Center in California has this phrase, story is the shortest distance between two people. And I think that's why we do this, why we're drawn to these stories. What could we have in common with these people freezing in the gulag? It turns out quite a bit. Quite a bit. Um, We all know the, the person who wears the fur hat that tries to lord it over everyone. And we all know the bowl liquor and the... I mean, not literally, of course, Um, (laughs) but stories are the things, how we define ourselves is always by story and by sharing stories like this with the author and with people who live something similar. I think we have a human connection that we crave. And I think why we keep writing and reading books that tell these stories about things we'll never experience, I hope. But how connected did we feel? We just talked about, I hope everything goes okay when they're building the wall. I hope he gets a second you know, chance at mush at lunch. They, they were drawn into the story because we care, because we're humans and we have empathy. It teaches us to be careful of others. And I think that's the great gift that we get when we read literature like this, the connection and the caring. And on top of that, you also learn something about a pretty definitive mm. period in, in well, I don't want to say Western history, kind of the Western Eastern Bridge of right. history of what it was for all of these people to suffer uh, out in the out in the frozen tundra for years and years and years on end. Especially, How are we doing, Erin? Uh, I think we're good. I think we're about to hit the wrap up point. Um, but sir, to kind of comment on your comment, I think also too, you know, going back to what Dr. Woodward said about 
empathy and about um, human experience through literature, I think it's also really telling that, you know, we're reading this book now here. Um, some of us are wearing military uniforms, American U.S. military uniforms. Um, and this is about a, a person who had an experience in a country that was at the time of the writing and the experience our enemy. You know, he wrote this during the Cold War. Um, and I think it just goes to show that, you know, you can fall on any side of a war or a conflict and people are still people. You know, people in other countries are still people. Um, and I think there's a lot going on right now, of course, at the time of our recording uh, with Ukraine and Russia and the response of the Russian people to the um, invasion and how much they know about it, how much they don't know about it. Uh, and the number of people who went out in the street to to protest, regardless of the consequences that would follow. And I think, you know, stuff like this, when you read literature, it just reminds you that no matter the circumstances, you know, it's all, everyone's just people. All mankind is one. Yeah. There's an interesting line that uh, Solzhenitsyn repeats twice. How can you expect a man who's warm to understand a man who's cold? And even though that suggests a distance, it's also the thing that pulls us into the book and how we can connect to the book. It's, it's a way for us to be aware of the, that connection. That's fascinating because he answered the question by writing the book, right? Yes, yes, yes. This exactly. Is how. Yeah. This is how. This is how we do it. And as you said in the beginning, Aaron, this book changed. It revealed the gulag system for the first time. I imagine there were whispers like, why did half our village disappear? Where did they go? And, and millions of people went through the gulags. It wasn't just this small group. And this book was really the first, and it was Khrushchev's, like, let's distance me from Stalin because actually I did a lot of work for him. And and, and knew. And, and knew, knew, yeah. knew about, about this. this. And millions and millions of Russians had no clue. They just knew that, that Solzhenitsyn disappeared. He's not here anymore. Wonder what's up with him. And, and the, this book, is, the book sold out. Um, published by Novi Mir, it sold out almost before it it was published. 95,000 copies gone like this. And wow. then there was a huge black market trade. And the New York Times reviewed it in 63 and said, uh, don't worry that the translation's kind of clunky. Read it. Fascinating. We didn't even get a chance to cover so many Again, another one of those books. There are so many other, just to give a sampling, freedom would be one of them. Mm. And mm -hmm. whether freedom is the natural condition of man, of humans, uh, it, are, they meant to be, are they meant to be lorded over by despots? I think there's a part of this book that says no matter how much you oppress people, no matter how authoritarian and totalitarian the regime, freedom still springs forth. And you see that in all the little shenanigans in which Shukov is engaged throughout the book and his tradecraft, mm -hmm. the favors that he does for people, in the rubles that he has, the two rubles that he has yes. hidden in his job jacket and that inside pocket i think Liz, yeah. what you were talking about before so that he can buy the tobacco there still is at a very rudimentary uh, 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 impoverished level there still is a right. free enterprise 
of sense right. that's taking yeah. place, Charlie. Yeah, I was just thinking about that because that's another whole part of this <laughs> that we couldn't get into is the economics and just tying yes. it right yeah. into the freedom. And it's the it's the flower growing up in the sidewalk. Like the unless like if their life finds a way, free market principles found a way even in the <laughs> even, Soviet even yeah. in the, like, the Gulag, if they couldn't yeah. eradicate yeah, it. people yeah. trading what they can do and what they have for things that they want. It's and a pretty advanced barter system it, it that was, they, they yeah. shoot. Shukov is, is the exemplification of it. Another theme would be family. The meaning of family. Family gets completely eradicated here. Who's his family now? Not his wife, Liz, as you said. Doesn't the, even the, remember what she looks yeah. like. Instead, it's his his fellow oh, inmates. Yeah. Their yeah. family. Yeah, he, his paternal attitude toward Gopchik. You know, that's my yes. boy. He's going to do fine in this prison camp, yeah. right? Like that's his his kind of glow. His attitude toward this kid is he's figuring it out. He's finding the he's finding the way. And Tyrion, he refers to as his father. Yeah, so yeah. he was a he was a father to us. Yeah, it is really hard to read it though, isn't it? It is. It's, it's it, when we think about um, the current situation and the worry we have about autocrats in our world now and a book that was published in the early 60s still really got a lot of it, truth ringing through it, it it is a great power competition read <laughs> yes there it is. is no there is no doubt about that and now if for no other reason although we've been talking about other reasons throughout this entire podcast but if for no other reason it certainly will give you an insight into the totalitarian mindset and the the consequence of the fairly anguishing, miserable consequences of it's, having to endure, having to be on the receiving end of it's that. It's definitely haunting when you think about the former Soviet states that broke away, like Ukraine. Ukraine. And there's a Ukrainian? Um, yeah, the there's book. a Ukrainian. There's a Latvian. The The worry is the same. And I hope one day we don't have to worry about those things. But I think that's what literature does for us. It makes us appreciate the endurance of humankind. All right. Well, uh, I think that's it on this one. Again, we highly encourage you to go out and read this book. It is not long. Um, if you're feeling hot, this will help you feel cold. Um, <laughs> and I think, I think from the four of us, I think we really enjoyed it. We enjoyed the opportunity to read it. Um, and kind of have the discussion. And I think, again, you know, there's a little bit of maybe you worry about history repeating itself. I know in the they have a little section at the beginning of the book when the book was first published where it says instead of a foreword. Um, and it talks about how uh, this book echoes the unhealthy phenomena in our life associated with the period of the personality cult now exposed <laughs> and rejected by the party. Um, and I feel like <laughs> maybe things have wrapped back around a little bit more than they thought they would in the 60s. Um, but highly encourage you to go out and read this book, uh, especially given the political climate. And we want to say thank you again so much to Dr. Woodworth for being here to talk about this with us. And Thanks also for Philip inviting Gartland me. Again. Thanks, Liz, for coming. Yeah, we've it's had a lot of fun. It's been My really, pleasure. It's been fantastic. All right. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General School Podcast. You can find this and all our available episodes, transcriptions, and show notes at www.jagreporter.af.mil slash podcasts. You can also find us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Please give us a like, a rating, a follow, or a subscription. Nothing from this show should be construed as legal advice. Please consult an attorney for any legal issues. Nothing in this show is endorsed by the federal government, 
the United States Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of the guests and hosts. Thanks. Thanks.